Hello, my rebels. Today I tell you a terrible story about a great man. And I say that, I've never met him, never heard of him until yesterday. Philanthropist, public service, captain of industry, giving something back. His most valuable thing is time. Chairing the Board of Governors at the University of British Columbia, the most racially diverse university in Canada. Actually, I wouldn't even call it diverse. It's two-thirds Asian. So I suppose it's not even that diverse. But he was drummed out of his job because, get this, he liked a Donald Trump tweet. I swear to God that's the truth. I'll have all the deals for you, uh, details for you up ahead, including showing you the tweets themselves. Hey, before I do, I want to invite you to subscribe to our premium content. We call it Rebel News Plus. Just go to rebelnews.com. It's eight bucks a month. What a bargain. And the reason it's a good idea, besides the fact that it makes us eight bucks a month, which is how we pay the bills, is because you can see things. You get the video version of this podcast. I want to show you the tweets with your eyes. So you say, oh my God, he was fired for this? I mean, I'll read it to you on the podcast, but I want to show it to you. All right, here it is. Tonight, the chairman of the University of British Columbia is fired for liking a tweet by the U.S. president. It's June 22nd, and this is The Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. Look at this headline by the CBC. Head of UBC Board of Governors resigns after liking racist far-right comments on Twitter. Hmm. So he didn't write them, he, he just liked them, he just clicked like. But they were racist and also far-right, according to the CBC. I think I know what racist means. It means judging people by their skin color rather than on the content of their character or their merit or using really derogatory words about different races, like Wendy Mesley apparently did. I mean, calling a black person the N-word, like Wendy Mesley did, definitely racist. Did the head of the University of British Columbia do that? <laughs> it's hard to imagine that he would. I mean, UBC is about two-thirds visible minority these days. In fact, only about one out of six students there is a white male, according to the Vancouver Sun. Hard to believe that the board chair of such a school would say something racist or even like it. I'm skeptical. And far right? Well, to the CBC, that just means voting for any party other than the Liberals or the NDP. So that's quite possible. Let's read some more from this anonymous article. I note there's no reporter's name on it. That's a lack of accountability right there, isn't it? But look at this, another detail in the subheadline. Michael Korenberg liked tweets disparaging the Black Lives Matter movement. Oh, hmm. Well, now the story's already changing, isn't it? The blazing headlines was that he liked something racist, like if Wendy Mesley had tweeted the N-word, and then this UBC chair had liked that, maybe saying, right on Wendy or something, you tell him. But now it looks like he just liked a tweet that didn't support the Black Lives Matter movement. Now that's different. First of all, most Black Lives Matter activists are white, especially up here in Canada. Here's footage 
from a Toronto protest outside police headquarters, pretty white. Uh, they were protesting a, a black rights cause. Just so you know, the police chief in Toronto himself is black and all these protesters are white. And if you think there's some historic reckoning that needs to happen in Toronto, I'm pleased to let you know that Upper Canada abolished the slave trade back in 1793. Not that it was a big deal up here to begin with. There were literally only 16 black people in all of Toronto back then. Not 16,000 or 1,600, just, just 16. That was 227 years ago. And you know, the British Empire literally bought the freedom of every slave in this jurisdiction, banned slavery, bought the freedom of every one of them. So that's why we have white protesters outside a black police chief's office. And so you see where I'm going with this disparaging the Black Lives Matter movement, in this case actually means mocking some rich white liberal kids and standing up for a working class policeman um, who's black. I don't think that's racism, do you? We haven't even got past the headlines and the story is already changing, isn't it? Typical CBC fake news. So here we go. The chair of the University of British Columbia's Board of Governors has resigned after liking racist and conspiracy theory posts on Twitter, including tweets disparaging the Black Lives Matter movement. Oh, there was a conspiracy theory too? What, like the one that the CBC pushed for three years that Russia rigged the US election that was finally debunked by Robert Mueller after an exhaustive investigation? What conspiracy theory do they mean? I look forward to finding out. Michael Korenberg's resignation comes after UBC Students Against Bigotry posted recent photos of his Twitter account that showed tweets he liked, including praise for U.S. President Donald Trump, references to protesters as violent looters, and a conspiracy theory that compared the Black Lives Matter protests to Adolf Hitler's paramilitary tactics. Huh. Okay, so the story's changed again, hasn't it? He tweeted praise for Trump. Actually, stop. He liked a tweet by someone else that praised Trump. So which part is that? Is that the racist part or the far right part? Because Trump is the president of the United States and about 50% of Americans support him and he's democratically and constitutionally elected. How on earth does that make him far right? Or is that the racist part? Should I ask Wendy Mesley what's racist and what's not? And here we learn the conspiracy theory part, comparing Black Lives Matter riots to Hitler's, Hitler's paramilitary tactics. I'm not sure how that's a conspiracy theory. That's a comparison. You can agree with the comparison or disagree with it. I'd like to see the tweet myself. I don't trust a word the CBC says. But how is a comparison of two things a conspiracy theory? Did Michael Kornberg say that Black Lives Matter was working with Hitler or something? That would be quite something. I guess we'll find out soon in the story. In a statement Saturday night, the university said Kornberg would be stepping down from his position on the Board of Governors immediately. The Board of Governors and Mr. Kornberg would like to recognize that this has been deeply hurtful to members of our community and that UBC has zero tolerance for racism and recognizes that real harm is created from both overt and structural racism, the statement said. Did this guy, Kornberg, probably not one in a hundred UBC students could name him. Not one in a thousand would care about him. Did he really deeply hurt UBC students? Did he create real harm by liking a tweet? Really? I'd like to meet a student who said they were deeply harmed by that. I'm going to go out on a limb here. That student who is complaining isn't black. There are very few black students in UBC. 
I'm going to guess he isn't Asian. There are very many Asian students at UBC, uh, but I bet that this is an angry white leftist. But really, it's seeped into the administration of UBC now, too. If they're talking about overt and structural racism, what on earth are they even talking about? Uh, I mean, the school is majority minority. No one knows what they're talking about. Not even the CBC, I don't think. But that's okay. Uh, this chair of the board liked a Trump tweet, so he's racist and has to go. In a statement on the board's website, Kornberg said he thoughtlessly supported regressive voices that attempted to discredit broad-based legal and necessary protest. He, he, he did all that? <laughs> See, here's where my sympathy for the man evaporates, I'm afraid. They sacked you. You're a titan of industry. You're a man who's given thousands of hours to community service. You're not the chair of the Board of Governors of UBC for the thrill of it, for the profit of it, for the fun of it. You're doing it to help. The university's a charity, of course. The chief job of the board is to run it effectively and raise as much money as possible. And you let some Antifa thug run you out of town because you liked a Trump tweet? There are 82.3 million people who follow Donald Trump on Twitter. Not sure how many retweet him or like his stuff. I think it's a lot. Um, if you fire everyone who does that, you might even have to fire Justin Trudeau, who has tweeted or retweeted Trump more than 20 times. Listen to this grovel. Listen to this man pandering to the stupidest, most malicious people on campus. And by that, I'm not sure if I mean the far-left agitators who said they were deeply hurt, or the other officials of the university administration who thought this was such an emergency, they literally fired the chair on a Saturday night. It was so urgent. Here's what he said, though. As a result, my interactions have been interpreted in a manner that creates questions about who I am and what I believe in. The statement said, yeah, mate, you, you can't help how dishonest and malevolent people interpret what you say. You, you can't control what they think of you, uh, let alone what you don't say, what you just click like on. They're always going to interpret in things in the craziest, most negative way. It, it's up to you to be a leader, to be a grown-up and say, there, there, little one, change your diapers and calm down. You're in university now. You might actually encounter an idea that's different from your own from time to time. You might want to learn how to handle that in life. But alas, he didn't quite say that. I wholeheartedly apologize for them, particularly to the students, faculty, and staff of UBC. <laughs> really? I don't believe it's a wholehearted apology. I, I just don't believe that a man of that character and accomplishment and honesty and a lifetime of public service truly believes in his whole heart that he did something wrong by liking a tweet by the President of the United States. I don't believe that it's a wholehearted apology. This is probably the first lie he's told. Here's more from the CBC. In his statement Saturday, Kornberg said he is committed to erasing racism, hate, and discrimination from society. Well, not discrimination and hate against people who have a conservative point of view, apparently. Imagine if you were a mere professor or even a lowly student at UBC. If the Board of Governors chair himself has to grovel and scrape like a capitalist boss in China in a struggle session under Mao Zedong. Imagine what they'll do to you. On Twitter, he said he supports Black Lives Matter. 
and that he hurt people in liking certain posts on social media. Hey, do you really think he supports Black Lives Matter? I mean, the protest movement of radicals and rioters. I'm sure he supports black people and their lives, and he thinks that they matter. But I'm talking about the political group with that name. Do you really think he supports it? I don't understand why he's making this self-denunciation if he's already been fired. Does he think this will get him his job back? Why on earth would he even want his job back? He acknowledged racism exists in Canada and that he wants to be part of the solution, but did not say how he would contribute to doing this or what his next steps would be. <laughs> now, here's the important part. I've read everything in this story about Korenberg himself, other than a few more lines of his groveling apology and some boilerplate comments from other UBC administration officials. You can see, I, I read the substantive parts of the story to you. The only tweet that they show in the news story is Korenberg's groveling apology. So where, where's the racist part again? Where, where's the far right part? Where, where's the conspiracy theories I was promised? I see the smear against him, nice going, smearing a Jewish philanthropist as a white supremacist, far-right racist. No wonder the CBC hid the identity of whoever wrote this story. Maybe Wendy Mesley wrote it. <laughs> I mean, if you call a black man the N-word, you probably won't have any compunction calling a Jewish man another N-word, Nazi. The CBC really is the lowest, isn't it? But I'm genuinely curious. He was sacked. He humiliated himself. And apparently he deeply hurt a lot of people, even though not a single one of these people was named. So what did he really do? As in, what are these tweets that he liked? Isn't that central to the story here? How could that possibly be left out of, of this story? It was the headline, wasn't it? Unless, stay with me here, unless it's a lie unless it's fake news, unless it wasn't really racist and far-right and Nazi conspiracy theory stuff, CBC wouldn't lie, would it? I mean, they wouldn't lie, would they? Well, the CBC referenced a censorship committee at UBC called UBC Students Against Bigotry. I don't actually think they're against bigotry. I'm not sure if they're actually students either. I think they're probably more accurately called professional protesters for cancel culture and deplatforming. But the CBC says they're the source of things uh, on their Twitter account. So I went to their Twitter account to find what I couldn't on the CBC page. And here's the first one I saw. Does Michael Korenberg support the white supremacist in the White House and his calls for violence? Oh, is that it? Seriously, that's the white supremacist tweet we're talking about here. It's, I thought it was some legit... KKK tweet, or even a Nazi tweet. I, I don't even know if those are allowed to exist uh, on Twitter, frankly. That's the racist thing we're talking about, a Trump tweet? Oh my God. Now, now there, there are three images in that tweet. You see them? The first is a picture of Korenberg. All right. Uh, the second is a criticism of Obama for criticizing Trump. So it's just partisan bickering, really. And then the third is just a White House tweet complaining that liberals criticize Trump a lot. And, and that's, I swear to God, that's it. That's the racist, far-right, white supremacist conspiracy theories. Well, there are a few more tweets. I'll show them to you quickly. It's all the same. Uh, here's the next one. I, I think you will find Trump was justified in his actions 
after Antifa, against Antifa after you watch this video. So it's an opinion about riots. It doesn't mention Black Lives Matter, actually. None of the images do yet, do they? And this one from Trump's son retweeting a video that you can't see here. Trump Jr. says, thankful these business owners have a Second Amendment so they can protect themselves and their businesses from these violent looters. You can't see the video there. But, you know, I know that video because, believe it or not, I, I know this sounds crazy, but it was actually me who popularized that video. In my 10 years on Twitter wasting time, I've tweeted 140,000 little comments in 10 years. What a waste of time. But I remember that one because that was the most watched, most retweeted thing I've, I've ever said. More than 3.7 million people saw my tweet. Staggering, because take a look at the video that for some reason, neither the UBC fascists nor the CBC fascists nor this UBC censorship group actually showed. I'll show it to you as I tweeted it with my caption that was then picked up and shared so widely it made its way up to Donald Trump Jr. So this is the video. Lawful black firearms owners standing guard outside their businesses. And look. They said, they said run up in here and see what happened. On fair out here with them blicks on them. Blicks on them. Run up in this. Black on, nigga. You see that? Black on. Run up in this bitch. Oh, my mama, we gonna... Yeah, is that the white supremacist part or the Nazi street gang part? Because I saw Trump Jr. quoting a Hispanic candidate cheering on black businessmen who were protecting their stores with lawful firearms. What's the racist part of that again? Or this. Trump calling for law and order. Uh, here's the female chair of the Republicans criticizing the white mayor of Seattle for allowing Antifa to run wild. Is law and order inherently racist? And say, by the way, have you noticed the word black hasn't appeared yet anywhere? Why is this UBC censorship committee assuming the riots and looting are being done by black people? Talk about racist. They have more, but I promise you, it's all just blue chip Republicans, the president, the White House, the head of the Republican Party, Senator Lindsey Graham. That's it. Here's the Republican Party, Republican officials, Mike Pence, Team Trump, Donald Jr., even the racist in chief himself, sometimes several tweets a day, pictured here are just a few of them. Is MAGA Mike Kornberg the reason why far-right extremists run rampant at UBC? Hey, I got a question for you. Do you really think far-right extremists run rampant at the UBC? That's news to me. Uh, I wish I had known before I would have gone there instead of the liberal law school I went to at University of Alberta. Of course, it's a lie that the CBC regurgitates. I'll show you the tweets this censorship committee thinks are racist. Um, a tweet mocking Joe Biden over his Monday morning quarterbacking about the pandemic. This tweet of a Democrat trying to put on a mask. You can't see the video here again. I recognize this one again because it was so funny. Can I show it to you? Here's how it actually looks. Thank you. I have to tell you, you need a heart of stone not to laugh at that. Where's the racism part? Is it that he's wearing an African kente cloth? Yeah, well, he's a Democrat. Take it up with him. This one, where Trump thanks George P. Bush, uh, well, he happens to be Hispanic. A and this one is just about Republican fundraising. I'm showing you exactly what these tweets are that he liked. I'm literally going through the entire case 
against Kornberg that these UBC censors had. I haven't left anything out, I swear. I've shown you 100% of the images in their tweets so far. In fact, I've shown you more than they showed you because I remember what those two videos were and I think these censors were being deceptive. In the first case, it was actually Trump Jr. praising black businessmen. In the second, the goofy guy culturally appropriating the Kente cloth was a Democrat. Now, I'm not gonna show you all of the rest. They, they're really just as boring. Did Kornberg not even look through the case against him before confessing to being a bad, bad man? Did he not even look at the charges he was pleading guilty to? He said he honestly didn't know his Twitter account was even public. I believe that, he's a boomer, he's not a millennial. He probably thought it was private, I, I believe that, but still, so what? You like to tweet where the head of the Republican National Committee boasts about fundraising. So you have to quit your job? Where's the far right part? I'm still waiting for that. Where's the racist part? Where's the Black Lives Matter part? I read every single tweet in the evidence against Kornberg. The word black doesn't even appear, let alone Black Lives Matter. This did appear, though. It's from Mike Pence, the vice president. He says, from the earliest days of our administration, President Trump has fought tirelessly to protect our nation's most vulnerable. Today, we strengthened our commitment to fighting for America's seniors as we continue our whole of America response to the coronavirus. So that, that's how the censorship committee showed it. Uh, here's the original. Let me zoom in on that last picture there. So you can see there's seven people at the cabinet table in addition to the president and the vice president. Two are women and two are black, including Ben Carson, the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. So, so is this the racist part or the conspiracy theory part? I'm not sure if the CBC that abided an N-word dropping anti-black bigot like Wendy Mesley, you know, they didn't fire her for saying the N-word. They only fired her when word leaked out to the media that she had done so. I'm not sure if I'm ready to take lectures on racism from the network of Wendy N-word Mesley. But this isn't just fake news. This is defamation. This is pure lying. This is an out-of-control state broadcaster doing a smear job on a leading public citizen. If only Michael Corrin weren't such a coward. If, if only he had said, no, sorry, I'm not racist. No, sir, I, I didn't even mention Black Lives Matter or Nazis or conspiracies. You did all that. If only he told them to go to hell. Instead, he accepted their lies and caved into the mob and apologized for what? And in so doing, he made those laws into those lies into false truths and he wrote his own epitaph what a shame hey when they come for you what will you do whimper and beg friends it won't save you it won't save you so you might as well be honest till the end real talk for a moment if you're being deplatformed like this drop me a line ezra at rebelnews.com i'll help you if i can look someone's got to stand up to these fascists stay with us for more Welcome back. Well, did you think they would only stop at removing statues? Of course not, taking out the chairman of the University of British Columbia for liking a banal tweet from the President of the United States. Just shocking. Um, 
but of course it starts with statues and it's rather indiscriminate. Here's a statue of Cervantes, the Spanish poet who himself was a slave, completely violated. Um, there was a funny statue in Canada. Pierre Trudeau wasn't torn down, but it had blackface applied to the statue. Police say they're investigating it as a hate crime. Hate crime against whom? Against black people for being associated with Trudeau? Against Justin Trudeau for, I don't know, It's uh, but they're certainly going at it. Joining us now via Skype from his home in the Los Angeles area is our friend Joel Pollack, senior editor-at-large at Breitbart.com. Joel, welcome to the show. I see you've got a new story that in San Francisco, uh, the city removed a massive Christopher Columbus statue because it weighs two tons. They didn't want it to topple on any protesters, so they, they did the protesters' job for them. They didn't even rely on amateurs. The city brought in professionals to take down uh, a statue of Columbus. Uh, I noticed you've tweeted about Mount Rushmore. I'd say that's not even a crazy tweet anymore. Uh, why wouldn't they go to <laughs> da- dynamite Mount Rushmore Taliban style? Well, I tweeted a picture of Ru- Mount Rushmore with the caption, go big or go home, because they are talking about removing slave-owning presidents, so that would be George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, that's half of Mount Rushmore. They've attacked Abraham Lincoln for, I guess, just being a dead old white guy, and that's three out of four. And yesterday, in New York, the mayor announced that they're going to be removing the statue of Theodore Roosevelt from in front of the Natural History Museum. Now, Teddy Roosevelt is the archetypal progressive He was a Republican, but also helped found the progressive movement and ran for the presidency, actually, as the candidate of the progressive Bull Moose Party. And to see the progressives of today removing the founder of their particular strain of thinking or one of the most important early leaders of the progressive movement is just the revolution eating itself. And he, of course, is the fourth person on Mount Rushmore, the fourth president, was thought of as being a great president. In fact, my uh, daughter's school in very, very, very liberal Santa Monica is named after Teddy Roosevelt, but now he is out of the canon. And one of the reasons is that he is depicted in the statue on top of a horse. And next to the horse on either side, on one side is a Native American, and on the other side is an African. And these figures are depicted in heroic, iconic ways, a very handsome sculpture. There's, they're not ridiculed in any way. They're sort of celebrated, but they're below him. He's on top of the horse, and they are at the sides of the horse, which I guess is supposed to be demeaning or something, according to contemporary interpretations, but probably not the interpretation at the time. And these represent, of course, Teddy Roosevelt's adventures. Teddy Roosevelt founded the system of national parks and reunited Americans, particularly urban Americans like himself, with the frontier, with the wilderness in America, which is associated with Native Americans, at least in the American imagination at the time. And he went on safari in Africa and other places. And he embraced a kind of indigenous experience. But that is now seen as being part of a colonial mindset. And maybe he had that mindset. He did develop the U.S. Navy as a world force. He did have that slogan, speak softly and carry a big stick. He did expand American 
dominion over Cuba as one of the Rough Riders and over the Philippines in the Spanish-American War that he participated in. So I guess that's bad. He expanded American power. He helped inaugurate the era of American global hegemony, and therefore he is to be dismantled from the Museum of Natural History. You know, it's, it's incredible. Uh, there is no one, though, Joel, who can meet the purity test of 2020. Even people 10 years ago can't meet it because the whole transgenderism fad is less than 10 years old. Barack Obama, uh, when he ran for office, said he was against gay marriage. I'm not even talking about transgender. You know, you, if you are applying the purity test of 2020, literally no one from 2019 would survive it. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I don't know if you probably saw it on Twitter. There's a humorous conservative commentator named Jesse Kelly. He's got a great sense of humor. He's a bit of a troublemaker. He started cancel Yale trending on Twitter because it's, it's not even a joke. Yale was named after a slave trader, Elihu Yale. And he right. says, well, at the very least, the name should change. And um, I think he's trying to make a point that that name is extremely valuable. It's valuable to rich and fancy people. It's a snobby thing. It's an elitist thing. Um, and everyone who goes to Yale loves mentioning it. It's like being a vegetarian. You mention it within a minute of meeting someone. Oh, did I tell you I went to Yale? And if they had to change the name, and Coulter says it should be called the New Haven Community College, um, like this tests whether or not woke liberals mean it for an actual slave trader or if they just want, you know, the, the Washington Redskins to change their name. I think we're really becoming like the Taliban on all this stuff. We are. And this is the American version of the Chinese Cultural Revolution. And if we're going to cancel all these other things, get rid of all these other statues, yes, Yale has to go. New York has to go because the Duke of York apparently was involved in the slave trade as well. So it's, it's just ridiculous. And I'm, of course, happy to see Yale canceled because I'm a good Harvard man and I want to spare Yale the embarrassment of its continued existence. <laughs> but the other thing about it is I actually went to the Yale Daily News, the student newspaper, to see how they were covering this. And they're on summer break right now. and They weren't really on campus anyway for a while because of coronavirus. So they're a little bit behind the news, but they have covered a protest by Yale students a couple weeks ago to have the Yale Police Department disbanded. That is the other part of this, defund the police, abolish the police. So New Haven, which is not exactly the safest of places to be at night anyway, is a place that many Yale students would like there to be a police force. There are these little blue light emergency phones all over campus if you've ever been there. It's a very nice campus. But there are some safety and security concerns, and that's why the Yale Police Department exists. But no, the woke Yale students want to live without the police. How they're going to do that, I don't know, but that's the new demand. Well, uh, I like what Jesse's doing. He's forcing the contradiction. You know, I, I was in Hong Kong uh, some years back and I studied uh, the Cultural Revolution. And I want to tell you something I remember. It was so shocking. China, but also other places, I think it was Cambodia that this comes from, they would, like, I, I, in my opening of the show today, I talk about a man who was canceled, a great public servant, the chairman of the board of the University of British Columbia. Frankly, I had never heard of him until yesterday. But you don't become the chairman of a university uh, for reasons other than public service, hard work, and you're good at running things. I mean, it's, it's not a vanity position. It's, it's not a payoff. It's not like a patronage position. So a good man was thrown out for the most trivial of reasons. Because if they come for statues first, they'll come for men next. And, and it was in Cambodia, Joel. 
They just took a shortcut on all this stuff. They killed anyone with eyeglasses. Because if you had eyeglasses, that meant you read books. And if you read books, that probably meant you read books with old ideas and old ways. They literally killed anyone with eyeglasses in Cambodia. In China itself, they seized all musical instruments. They destroyed all art. Just a musical instrument itself was a threat because you might be playing music that was not official communist music. That is actually how it went, Joel. Yeah, and what you see here is something very similar. And it's targeting even the good guys, quote unquote. I mean, you mentioned San Francisco and Christopher Columbus. One of the statues that protesters, quote unquote, peaceful protesters, right? One of the statues they toppled in the Golden Gate Park over the weekend was Ulysses S. Grant. He was the general that led the Union armies in defeating the Confederacy, in defeating slavery, in liberating the slaves. He was the general who won the war. He later became U.S. president, not the greatest U.S. president, but he was the man who defeated slavery, knocked off his pedestal, so to speak. Uh, another vandalism that happened was in Boston. There's a memorial that dominates the Boston Common. If you've ever been there, you get out at the Park Street T station, you walk up the hill a little bit, right in front of the Massachusetts State House at the, at the top of Boston Common, there is the Shaw Memorial to the 54th Regiment, which is the all-black regiment that fought for the Union against the South during the Civil War. And these are black Americans who fought in the Civil War, fought and died to free the slaves. That memorial was vandalized. And there are many other examples like that. There's an abolitionist in Philadelphia whose statue was vandalized. So this is just a rebellion against anything old, anything white or black that comes to us from history. This is a rebellion against the past. And it's totalitarian in its behavior, in its outlook. This is really frightening and nobody is doing enough to speak out against it. The only Democrat I saw who said anything about it was Rahm Emanuel, the former mayor of Chicago, who's always been more of an incrementalist, always more of a moderate. And he said that toppling U U Ulysses S. Grant was just a bridge too far. He said, you know, people are totally ignorant about what they're doing. But of course, he is hated by the left. So he's also part of the, I guess, historical establishment that they're targeting. You know, I want to ask you one more question, and it's about uh, this board chairman, Korenberg. And Joel, you can answer it as well as I can, because you and I know the same amount about this man. Nothing other than <laughs> he was drunk. On a Saturday night, the university put out a press release. And the key is he himself accepted all the charges against him. He said, I need to do better. I support Black Lives Matter, uh, the movement. Um, I went through every single tweet that uh, was the case against him. They, the word black or Black Lives Matter did not even appear in any of them. I tell you that. I mean, if you notice, Trump doesn't criticize Black Lives Matter. He criticized Antifa, and, he, and that's a very decided decision on his part. He's trying to preserve his attempt to get the black vote. So these were the most banal tweets. But he accepted the charges, he confessed, he pled guilty, he gave an abject apology about wanting to do better, and he resigned on a Saturday night saying he deeply hurt university students. I don't even think one in a thousand UBC student, students can name their, their chairman of the Board of Governors. And so here's my question to you. 
Oh, and by the way, this morning I wake up and the star of Canada's CTV morning show, Ben Mulroney, son of former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, announces he's quitting the show um, to make way for a black host after his wife was sacked for similar reasons. So here's my question to you. I'm sorry for the long preamble. <laughs> I understand going down fighting, and I understand shutting up. But what I don't understand is this Michael Korenberg at UBC saying, yes, I'm wrong, I'm morally wrong, I confess, let me self-denounce, I will lose everything I want here, but I will do the final show, shot against myself. Let me confess in this show trial, He's, there's no gun to his head as there was in Mao's time. Why would that chair of the university denounce himself like that? He was lost anyways. Why did he denounce himself? It's a question that has perplexed observers of totalitarian societies for a long time. Uh, Arthur Kostler wrote about it in Darkness at Noon, and George Orwell really explored it more fully in 1984, where he realizes that the goal of the torture, the goal of the state's ever-present, uh, ever-watchful eye is not necessarily to win a political argument or merely to drown out opposition. The people who are tortured are not really opponents of the state. The goal is to make them love the state more. And if you remember the end of 1984, I hope I'm not ruining the book for anyone, but when the protagonist is finally executed by Big Brother, he welcomes it. He welcomes it with love in his heart for Big Brother and uh, pity for his former self, his former unenlightened self that did not realize how wonderful this regime was and how the ultimate thing you can do for yourself and for the society is to sacrifice your life for Big Brother. And this is the ultimate statement of commitment to a political cause is self-effacement. That's the sign of a totalitarian society. We're in the middle of what my colleagues at Breitbart are calling a moral panic. And we're seeing totalitarian habits of mind expressed publicly without any sort of self-criticism or self-consciousness or self-awareness. And people are doing this to themselves and each other. They're demanding it of each other. I, I suppose one could say at least they have the commitment to their convictions, that they're, they're willing to take upon themselves the burden of this radical change they wish to see in the rest of society. That's unusual. Most of the time, you see liberals prescribing things for other people they don't want to live through themselves. But there's such a panic right now that they almost feel like the way that they can achieve salvation is through self-immolation. And that is what's happening. And I don't believe that that's the destiny of any human being. I mean, the, the classical liberal view is that the individual has dignity. The individual is inviolable. And to ask the individual to give up their identity for something else. We, we you know, self-sacrifice for a cause is noble if it's the right cause. But to ask that a person completely erase themselves is, is insane. But we are living through a kind of mass hysteria. Yeah. You know, you made me think of one more thing, and I think it's from the movie The Lives of Others, which was a movie about life in East Germany, the surveillance state, the informant state. Right. And I, I think I'm remembering it from that movie. You probably know that movie better than me. But the great achievement of the secret police to, weigh the, to break the back of a dissident 
and may, maybe I'm confusing my sources of dissidence. Maybe, frankly, maybe this was a conversation I had with uh, Anatoly Sharansky, the former Soviet dissident. I'm, I'm mixing up movies in real life. Um, the greatest way to undermine a freedom fighter, a dissident, a de democracy activist, was to make them turn in someone else, to make them save themselves by ratting out someone else, because that, make them swallow their own principles, because then never again would they have the moral certainty of the truth behind them. They would know that they themselves were dirty. And if you could make a dissident dirty in his own mind, you've destroyed him. If you could make a dissident by himself comfort, by by sentencing someone else, that's how you would break them. I think that was from the lives of others. Uh, we don't, we're not quite there yet, but we're getting pretty close. Right, the interesting thing is which groups are not protected. So you have a certain street cred, so to speak, with this mass movement. If you can cite various allegiances to communities of color, LGBTQ, whatever, the one group that is not protected, the one minority group that is not protected is the Jewish community. The Jewish community has been targeted by Black Lives Matter in a way that our media are not talking about. But here in L.A., there have been synagogues vandalized with anti-Israel, anti-Semitic graffiti, and there's a kind of silence about it. Remember, in the early days of the Trump administration, the left and the media claimed that Trump was encouraging anti-Semitism, which was always a lie. But there was a big discussion about it. It was a big public issue. Now you have anti-Semitism at the core of Black Lives Matter. In fact, many of their founders have links with the Nation of Islam and things like that. And there's not any discussion of it whatsoever. So even though Jews are actually historically the most vulnerable minority, they're excluded from this constellation of the oppressed that is sort of rising up. And if you, in fact, stand for the self-determination of the Jewish community, whether in the form of Israeli uh, statehood or in the form of uh, Jewish communities being able to protect themselves here. We've got uh, some armed rabbis, for example, protecting Jewish schools and institutions here. Um, if you stand up for that, you are a target. And it's the great moral shame of the Democratic Party that it is allowing this to go on, the great moral shame of the media, that they have not even interrogated this point, that they're going on with the idea that this is all about social justice and rectifying injustice and ignoring the glaring prejudice and violence going on right in front of them. And of course, uh, white people are also targeted. Uh, Non-woke enough gay people are targeted. Um, but in a direct physical sense, synagogues have been attacked. And that's something that would not have happened with a civil rights movement in the mode of Martin Luther King. It probably wouldn't even have happened in the old Malcolm X mode of the Nation of Islam, which was all about promoting internal self-reliance and not about causing trouble for other people, but really more about showing the black community it could organize itself, stand up for itself, defend itself. This is something new, and it's out of control, and the elites are part of it, and they're leading it. It's almost as if they're convinced that the new regime that comes in after November is inevitable. They're anticipating a sort of socialist future and a complete remaking of history and society, and they want to be part of it. They don't want to be seen as an obstacle to it, lest the wrath of the new regime be worse against them. And so they are the ones actually acquiescing in the removal of Teddy Roosevelt, and they're the ones resigning from university positions and so forth. This is a scary time, and it's important that people keep speaking out and, and that you keep covering things the way you do, because people are going to need to find a way back to sanity. 
it needs to be a cold bucket of water in the face at the moment because otherwise we're never going to wake up out of this nightmare. Huh. Well, that's very heavy stuff. You've given me a lot to think about, and I think you've given me a story idea. Uh, I have seen the um, attacks on Jewish uh, institutions, and um, in New York in particular, which you would think would be the last place in the world that would be anti-Semitic. I mean, it's the largest Jewish population in the world, and by some measures in New York City. Uh, very troubling. Um, and of course, if you're after white privilege, well, some of the most privileged whites around are Jews, including this UBC board chair who just happened to be defenestrated. Well, Joel, very depressing, but we have to know the truth. Uh, we have to talk about it before we can fix things, and we're doing that here. Great to see you again. Thanks for your time and your insight, my friend. Thank you. There you have it, Joel Pollock, Senior Editor-at-Large at Breitbart.com. Stay with us. Your letters are next. Hey, welcome back on my Monologue Friday. Marie writes, this is the first time I've heard a journalist from the rest of Canada talk positively about Quebec. I thank you for that. I don't know why. As soon as we want to assert ourselves as a French-speaking and secular people, we're called racist. I think Quebecers have thought a lot longer and harder about what identity means in this era than the rest of Canada. Uh, we just sort of let it float away as we stop teaching our own history and culture in school. Uh, I mean, I never knew our history about freeing slaves until literally last month. I just didn't, I wasn't taught it. No one mentioned it. It wasn't in the news or pop culture or even in museums. Philippe writes, I'm a Quebecer myself. I'm a very patriotic man. I love our country and every single provinces. And I do think Albertans had bad treatment from federal government. Trudeau was ruining our great country. You know, uh, I'm often reminded by wiser people than myself that the problem isn't particularly Quebec, it's Ottawa. Now, I think there's a lot of political bad ideas in the city of Montreal. That's the liberal base in many ways, but that's not all of Quebec people. On my interview with Kean on the leadership debate, Paul writes, I would never vote for McKay. I left the party because of Sheer. McKay is cut from the same cloth. I don't trust O'Toole at all, but I'll give him credit for at least talking to independent media. Yeah, I think uh, Kean being there just cured Peter, uh, Aaron, I keep calling him Peter O'Toole, Aaron O'Toole of his uh, rebelophobia. Oh my God, Peter McKay almost had a breakdown though. I enjoyed that whole thing. I thought Keen did a good job, and I enjoyed doing the live stream that night with Sheila Gunn-Reed. And, of course, David Menzies had a great phone-in uh, question, too. So that was a, a good night. I, I think it was a, a sign that the parties, uh, well, look, let me put it this way. I mean, you never know what the future holds. But it was a low-octane event, people. It was a low-energy event. And I hate to say it, I think if the election were called now, I think Justin Trudeau would not only win he'd win a majority. Well, that's our show for today. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night, and keep fighting for freedom.